before I actually jump into the show today, I want to talk for a couple of minutes about um, what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian situation right now, because there seems to be a gross misunderstanding among a lot of Americans about this situation, um, and specifically a lot of liberal Americans who believe that um, Israel as an American ally is simply combating terror and that, you know, there is, you know, nothing that Israel can do because they're under attack 24 hours a day, blah, blah, blah. These things are not true. Um, that is, you know, a propagandized version of what actually goes on and what is currently occurring in Israel, Israel and Palestine is, it's a genocidal attack by the IDF who, they literally tweeted the phrase yesterday, our only goal is to strike terror. They used that phrasing. On May 4th, Star Wars Day, they literally tweeted pictures of their soldiers, and they literally looked like stormtroopers. They don't even see that they're the enemy. They literally can't even see it. But it is the honest-to-God truth. This is an attempted genocide by the Israelis. Women and children are dying at unprecedented rates right now. That Israel says something does not make it true. And militarized attacks on civilians who then attempt to defend themselves does not make those civilians terrorists. And this is something that Israel has successfully been able to do through American media, is convince most Americans that all innocent Palestinian civilians must be terrorists simply by the fact that they are Palestinians, and therefore it is fine to murder them. These are women and children who are dying. This is not acceptable. This is an attempted genocide by the nation of Israel. They simply want land, and they are willing to kill as many women and children as possible in order to make it happen. They're... Just go look. Go go take a step past looking at the liberal and conservative media in America and their, you know, representation of this as Israel just striking terror. Go look at what's going on. They're shooting children in the streets. Tanks are rolling through the streets chasing children. This is not, this is not, how is this a war on terror when you're murdering civilians all over the place? This is not that. This is, this is unacceptable. And we simply cannot allow Israel to commit war crimes just because they are an ally of our nation. And if, if we have to be held accountable for what we have done militarily, and we do and we should, then Israel is the same. And this needs to stop. All of this needs to stop. And anyone who is trying to say that there's no Israeli aggression and they're only just defending themselves, it's... it's Go look at the actual footage of what's going on. Just go actually watch it. It's sickening. It's disgusting. It's going to make you vomit. You're not going to be able to sleep at night. But go actually watch what's happening and see that we are being presented a false tale. Not everyone in Palestine is an evil person. And you don't just have the blanket authority to destroy entire countries, as Israel has done multiple times. A couple of Israeli soldiers were captured in 2006 by Hezbollah troops and Israel destroyed all of the power stations in Lebanon, right? Like this is just, <sighs> these things, there, there are so many more people who are way more educated on this than me. 
And you don't need to listen to me on this issue. And you don't need to hear me on this issue because I am in no way an authority on this issue. And you don't need to think of me that way. Go look for yourself. Don't watch CNN. Don't watch Fox. Go watch actual footage. Go on social media. Go find independent news. Go find real live footage of what's actually happening. And you will see that this is a genocide being committed by the IDF, who has essentially the blanket authority to do whatever they want. They murder scientists from other countries if that scientist is accused of being working on like nuclear power. It's these things are unacceptable. And whether it's Mossad, IDF, whatever the fuck it's called, it's it's all I don't it's We, this is, it just cannot continue. We, we, we can't just sit here and let women and children be murdered by our ally and be like, oh, well, it's, well, it's, oh, darn. It's, and, and we just paint it as, oh, it's, they did, they're doing nothing wrong. It's all these women and children being shot in the street that are the ones. Turn this podcast off and go look it up. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. Go look it up. Who fucking cares? Don't listen to the rest of this. Go look it up. I'm fucking serious. You don't need to fucking listen to me. Go look it up and you'll see what I'm saying. And in the event that you come back to listen to the rest of it, here's the show. This is The Blunt Doctor Show. Taking a little break over the last week or so. Had some personal things to attend to. Just been doing my own thing. That's where I've been at. And also, the sun's been dropping a few games. So I've been frustrated and at times haven't wanted to talk. You might not be shocked at that. Um, it's been a little bit annoying watching the way that Sun Twitter is, is, is treating this team right now. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, it has been a rough week in a few ways for, you know, again, for us as Suns fans watching, you know, just kind of a bad week of, of basketball. Um, also for the Celtics losing Jalen Brown for the year. Um, and this one is tough because obviously, you know, it takes the Celtics out of contention. Um, you know, we all thought that the Nuggets were completely removed from contention when Jamal Murray went down for the year. Well, Jokic has been so incredible, and Michael Porter Jr. has been so incredible since then that, you know, who knows, maybe not. But, um, man, the uh, Jalen Brown going down just, you know, it tanks the Celtics. And the thing for me, and I don't know, you know, it's hard. I'm not a Celtics fan, so maybe it's a little bit sensitive for Celtics fans to talk about this right now. Um, the question for me becomes... How does this affect the Celtics long-term? Like, what do the plans become? Because here's the thing about the situation. The prevailing theory that I've heard among most podcasters listening to, you know, a few different ones since Jalen Brown has been hurt is essentially, well, 
the Celtics were never really healthy at the same time this season. And, you know, their starters only played X amount of minutes together. And so, you know, they were never healthy. So it's hard to gauge what this team really was. And, you know, that's like what Zach Lowe and Kevin Arnovitz said. That's what they said on the mismatch, Chris Vernon and, and Kevin O'Connor. So, that you know, that's the prevailing kind of the podcaster thought process, right? Is that, hey, we never even saw the Celtics together. So how do we really rate this team? Kemba Walker was really hurt to start the year. Then Marcus Smart was hurt. Then Jalen missed time, you know, here and there. Uh, you know, Tatum, you know, just as they never get to play together, um, it all comes about. And now Tate, you know, um, Jalen's out for the year. So there is at least some people seem to think that, you know, this is pretty much a case of this year sucked. It was a weird year with the pandemic. You just pretty much have to move on to next year and see what you can do, you know, cycle out whatever sort of uh, supporting pieces you can. And, you know, you go from there. And there may be some truth to that. But my thing about this situation is, yes, it's true they weren't playing together. Yes, it's true that, you know, things weren't perfect. They only got, you know, a few minutes here and there. But, like, they were still, they've been like a 500 team in the East with, you know, the injuries and the situations that they've had. And the general prevailing theory was like, well, there's so much talent on this team that they might be a contender. And so, like, all these pieces, yeah, injuries, everyone's dealt with injuries, everyone's dealt with COVID. They still haven't had a streak of the season where they look, like, really, really good for a while. And it makes me wonder, like, is there going to be some thought process to not only was this a bad year, but... Like, we don't have the pieces we thought. Because, like, truthfully, if a guy's out a couple of weeks, it shouldn't, like, destroy your season. And Boston went from a contender who we thought would be, like, for sure locked into a top four spot in the East to, like, the play-in tournament now. So, and again, I understand all those things. But, like, another thing that Kevin Arnovitz said is, like, Tatum and Brown were better this year. And you would expect that those guys getting better would make the team better. And it didn't. So... My thinking is just, like, does that mean that they're going to look at this and say, like, hey, this construction is flawed because all we were able to do is barely stay afloat as, you know, we cycle different guys in and out. With that level of talent, you're barely able to, able to stay afloat. It makes you wonder, like, how bad do the pieces fit? And I still hate the Daniel Tice trade. Um, I think Daniel Tice was a valuable player for them that they just gave away. I never understood the Tristan Thompson thing. It hasn't worked as well at all. Evan Fournier is whatever. Um, I, I don't like the moves that they've made. Um, if they truly had Miles Turner, if that was possible, but they didn't want Miles Turner and, you know, they ended up trading Gordon Hayward for a trade exception that now mostly becomes Evan Fournier, like, that was a horrible decision because Miles Turner is someone who would have been great for this team, especially given how well he played this year. So I really think these choices are poor. And I'm just wondering, will the Celtics see it that way? And we know they've been cutthroat before. Look, they traded Isaiah Thomas after he broke his damn leg playing for them in the playoffs. We know that Danny Ainge will be cutthroat with his own guys. He won't be cutthroat enough to actually make a trade to acquire a star player that he can keep or anything. He'll always leak to the media that he was close, but he'll definitely be cutthroat with his own guys. And I'm looking specifically at Kemba Walker in this situation or at Marcus Smart. Everyone in the league would want Marcus Smart. He's got a mid-range salary that can be included in a number of deals. The one problem, of course, is that his contract will be expiring, so... 
you're going to have to pay him eventually if you acquire him. And it's probably going to be a higher dollar number than he got. Maybe not. I mean, I, I, I think he would go to like 20 million. I don't know. People love, 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 love Marcus Smart. So he's entering his prime. He's, you know, still a defensive menace. He can defend so many positions, probably all five, really, especially against small ball centers. Um, he's even been a nightmare for some bigger centers. It's happened a few times. He's just a wrecking ball. He has nights where he shoots the lights out. We all know how good Marcus Smart can be, and anyone would love to acquire him. Um, and, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, if Boston is looking to package young guys and a piece for an upgrade, they may be able to do that. Kemba Walker is a different story, though, because obviously, you know, the way he's performed and, you know, how he kind of didn't do so well in the playoffs last year, especially against, you know, we know Kemba struggles against bigger guys in the playoffs. It continued to happen last year. He had a, he had his moments, but, um, you know, it is what it is. And this year, you know, it, it started out as a disaster. He was hurt. He's gotten better. He's had his moments again. But as far as like the contract goes, you know, that's not something that you're going to be able to like move, you know, uh, easily. You're not going to be able to acquire a ton of value for Kemba. Now, if you created some sort of mega contract swap with Kemba and Marcus Smart, I, I mean, maybe you could do that, but I don't even know what the trade would be. I mean, maybe there's some way that like, you know, Kemba and Marcus Smart, like, could become Chris Middleton or something, but, like, that trade makes, like, no sense. You know, th this is the kind of thing I'm saying. Maybe, maybe Kemba and Marcus Smart for Tobias Harris, that those, you might be able to make those salaries match or something. I don't, I'd have to look at numbers. You'd have to include no money going back the other way, but, like, there's no earth where the Celtics are giving Marcus Smart to the 76ers, right? It doesn't matter what, what happens there. So my point is that Kemba's situation is really difficult, but I feel like, the Celtics are going to try to move on from Kemba Walker because this thing just hasn't worked as well as they wanted. And you know how these things go. It only takes one team to talk themselves into something and they may be able to make a trade. But, um, you know, Danny Ainge did a great job with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Those picks were rock solid. A lot of the other picks he's blown. The Kyrie Irving trade was really a bust. Um, a lot of the moves he's made have been awful. And basically, if he didn't nail the Tatum and Brown picks, like, he would be an awful GM. Uh, you know, the Gordon Hayward thing, I mean, it wasn't necessarily his fault that it didn't go well, but, you know, it, I mean, it didn't go well. Uh, the way he has spent his money, the way he is drafted, you know, none of these things have been really good. And there is a certain point where we kind of need to look at Danny Ainge, and I've said this before on the show, and be like, hey, you need to do a little better. And this is the thing. I know that the Celtics, I mean, the Celtics ownership has been phenomenally patient with Danny Ainge, and it doesn't seem like, you know, he's going anywhere, but, like, the Brad Stevens stuff is starting to come up a little bit. And this is easily the worst job of coaching he's ever done. And, you know, there's some, well, if the Pacers fire Nate Bjorkgren, they're going to want Brad Stevens and blah, blah, blah. I don't think Brad Stevens is going anywhere. I don't think Danny Ainge will want Brad Stevens to go anywhere. But there's probably a world where eventually both Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens are gone together. And the number of years that the Celtics enter the season mentioned as contenders and then bottom out, well... You know, that increases the likelihood of that coming soon. Maybe we're being a little bit ridiculous. Tatum is still just 22. Brown is just 24. You know, they still have a long time to go to get to their primes. And I understand all of those things. But DeAndre Ayton is also 22. And Devin Booker is, you know, just turning 25. And the Suns are a contender because they acquired Chris Paul, not Kemba Walker. So... If you're trying to tell me that you can't ever build a contender with those young players, look at Phoenix. A team that has been, you know, essentially in uh, a rebuild 
for, you know, longer than Boston was, obviously, and by most people's uh, accounting had done worse and truly had done worse, especially in uh, previous GM eras. I'm not even going to mention those people by name, but in, you know, essentially since James Jones has taken over, he's turned the Suns into a winner and he acquired Chris Paul instead of, you know, acquiring a guy like Kemba Walker. And again, you know, two years ago, plenty of people would have said, oh, I'd much rather have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum than Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton because of just the flawed perception of those players around the league. But look at which two of those guys are actually going to be competing and contending right now. Two of those guys are in the play-in. Well, one of them's out for the season. Fair enough. But, you know, they were headed for that anyway. So, you know, there's going to be a reckoning on some point in Boston. And Danny Ainge knows that. And Brad Stevens know that. And that makes me wonder... Could we see major things happen this summer around Brown and Tatum? I'm not saying that either of Brown and Tatum are going anywhere. They're not. Those two guys, I think, are absolutely locked in. But we could see a big shakeup. I don't buy the Brad Stevens stuff going somewhere. I don't buy the idea that he's going to coach the Pacers just because of whatever ties that he had because he coached the Butler. I, I don't buy any of that crap. I don't think that Brad Stevens is going anywhere. Not this summer. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but I really think that as much as people are going to want to write this season off as though it was just weird and it didn't go well, I really think I would be shocked if Boston just ran this thing back next season. And I expect that, especially if the play-in tournament doesn't go well, even without Jalen, like if Kemba and and Jason Tatum can't, you know, elevate them to out of the play-in tournament or can't even, um, you know, make them competitive there or something like, you know, I, I, I don't know, man. Um, I, I could really see something happening and it sucks for Kemba maybe because he might get salary dumped to a place that he doesn't necessarily want to be. But, you know, this, I mean, you got to figure something out when you have star players, you got to put the best guys around them and we know how desperate GMs can get. I'm just, I'm really expecting something to happen in Boston this year. That's going to be surprising. I never would have thought they would have traded Marcus Smart before, but now I feel like that's a possibility. I never would have thought that they would have been able to trade Kemba Walker at this point, but now I'm wondering how incentivized they'll be to do it. And it's definitely going to be interesting to watch how they operate this summer, because I'm telling you, regardless of the injuries or whatever, they weren't going anywhere before that. And you've got to make big moves if you want to win a title in this league right now with this many other good teams, with the Nets, with the 76ers still ascending. Boston's got to do something, and this summer is the time to do it. And speaking of um, the play-in and disappointments and all these things, as I said before, the Suns have been a disappointment. You know, these last few games, the Lakers' loss sucked. The Warriors' loss last night sucked. It's pretty clear to me watching that, you know, you realize you're going to the playoffs for the first time in the decade. You're cruising towards the number one seed. Everything's hunky-dory. You start looking towards the playoffs. Maybe you look past a couple of games, and now you're pretty much locked into the number two seed. And that's what they've done to themselves. They had the opportunity to get the number one seed. They cost themselves, and now they've got probably the number two Um you know, there are still some machinations to be worked out, but that's the most likely scenario by a fair bit. And, you know, the thing is, is that everyone on like Twitter last night, like Sun's Twitter was a fucking nightmare of people just like, oh, I can't believe this team and this is a garbage way to finish and blah, 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 blah. And none of us were thrilled. It was a bad ending to a game that we should have won. It's an understandable reaction to be upset. But 
you know, I think that people need to remember where we are right now. You're locked into the number two seed at this point. When you came into this season where some people were saying you could be fighting for the five or six seed, and instead you were competing for the number one seed. And, you know, had they not started eight and eight, you know, they would have. If they'd had a full training camp, the Suns might have got the number one seed, you know, if they'd had if they'd had time to develop that chemistry earlier. Now, maybe not. Everyone then would have had a full training camp and maybe some of these other teams would have come together. Maybe they still would have come out second. Who knows? The point is that the Suns basically proved themselves to be as good as the Jazz and Clippers, despite having less continuity continuity of their best players, considering that Chris Paul has basically come in and become the best player on this team. You could argue whether Booker or Paul are the best player on the team. You know, it's it's negligible. It's It's whatever. Who cares? The simple fact of the matter is they're both awesome. Chris Paul, though, has changed the culture. So who's a better player? I don't know. Who's a more impactful person? Chris Paul has obviously been the most impactful person in in the league this year in terms of changing culture. We all know Nikola Jokic is going to win MVP. I've said I want Chris Paul to win MVP. I'm advocating for my guy. But, you know, the most impactful guy in terms of creating and changing culture this season has got to be Chris Paul because the Suns were a good team last year, but not a great team. They were like, you know, a below 500 ball club. Yes, 8-0 in the bubble, but that kind of brought them up to that level. They were still underperforming. And the Ricky Rubio thing was working, but not quite working. Things were going okay, but not great. The DeAndre Ayton suspension hurt a lot. And so there were just a lot of things that didn't coalesce. And then suddenly you bring in Chris Paul, and it's a game changer. And this team was always missing that elite point guard, that veteran leader. And now they got it all in one and he's clutch as shit. And now this is it. And, you know, again, it hasn't been perfect, obviously, but again, to look at the number two seed and call this team not ready and garbage and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just hate that crap. And you got to slow the fuck down and recognize where we came from, where we are and how exciting this situation is. And, you know, I know that some people are afraid to play the Lakers and that's why they're mad because, you know, they're assuming the Lakers will end up in the play in and get out of the play in and end up at seventh or whatever. And, you know, the first round will be Suns at Lakers in the two seven. And I'll tell you what, bring that shit on. Bring that shit on. Okay. I'm fucking tired of this cowardice bullshit. You don't fucking run from the bully. You go to the bully and you punch him in the face until he's afraid to bully you anymore. That's how you handle that. And that's what the Suns need to do. The Lakers are the bully. I don't care if LeBron James and Anthony Davis are hurt. They're still the champions. And if they are healthy, they're definitely still the bully. And you don't run from that person. And you don't hope that you see them later or hope that someone else beats them. You go and you beat them yourselves and you establish yourselves as the fucking contender that you are. That's how you handle this situation. And I'm just here to tell you, if you think that Chris Paul and Book don't want the Lakers, you know, you're out of your fucking mind. This whole thing about, like, players don't want to play these guys, these are some of the most competitive motherfuckers in the world. And they all believe that they can beat anyone. And CP3 most assuredly believes that this is his time, that he has come to the team that has the second star that is necessary for him to rise to the next level, to go where he has never gone. You know that Chris Paul believes that this team can do it because when they made the playoffs, you know, Devin Booker even said that coming into this season, Chris Paul said, fuck that. You know, 16 teams make the playoffs. That's not what we're trying to do. So you're going to tell me that the most competitive dudes on earth don't want LeBron and AD to start 
to show who they are, they fucking do. And you know what? To any Lakers fans who hear this, Jabari, bring it on. Bring the trash talk on. And if we lose, we lose, goddammit. But I'm going to fucking say this. You don't fucking run from the bully. You don't fucking run from the fight. And that's exactly what this situation would be. Trying to jockey your position to avoid the Lakers or whatever. Fuck that noise. This is CP3's time to stand up and assert dominance as an NBA superstar. This is Book's time to stand up and assert dominance as an NBA superstar. This is DeAndre Ayton's time to show his dominance on the interior and to slow Anthony Davis down enough to put the Suns over the top. This is their time to do this. You don't fucking run from this. You don't fucking cower in fear of this. You attack this with the force of a thousand suns. Fair enough with the name, right? But that's the point. You don't run from this. You don't hide from this. You don't cower away from this. You attack this. This is your opportunity. The Lakers in the first round, you have the opportunity not only to beat them, but to fucking embarrass them, to humiliate them, to make them look like their championship run in the bubble was a joke. To make people sit there and make all kinds of asterisk jokes. Now, are those things valid? No, of course not. The Lakers championship last year was valid as fuck. It was a phenomenal title run. But the point is, this is your opportunity to make them the punchline. Because let's be honest, this team has been a punchline for a decade. This team has been a punchline for a decade. There's no way around that. Ever since the Lakers beat us in the 2010 Western Conference Finals, everything has fallen apart. There was one bright spot in the 2013-14 season. You win 48 games and you still don't make the playoffs. A great team, but not enough. So we have been the punchline and we're tired of it. And the fans are tired of it. And it is time to make them the punchline. The marquee franchise, the great and mighty, all-powerful Lakers who get all the free agents and all the love and all the media attention. You now have the opportunity to make them the joke by inviting them into your home court and punching them in the fucking face in the way that they did not expect. DeAndre Ayton has got to be a focal point of the game plan. Make the Lakers work inside. Okay? Make Anthony Davis play center. Or make them have to play a two-big rotation that forces Andre Drummond into minutes on the court that you can exploit. We need to bag our triples. Because let's be honest, the Lakers, as good as they are, not a good offensive team. My man Duncan Smith from Hoops Hype at Duncan Smith NBA just wrote about the Lakers offense today and how they have struggled. So we know that, you know, it's LeBron and AD. They're going to get their points, but it's still not a spinning, whirring machine offense like LeBron had in Cleveland, right? I mean, and that team, that team really could get it done. They competed with the Warriors at the highest level. This is not that team, but you've got two of the greatest players in the world. So you find ways to make it work. But you bag triples if you're Phoenix and you make it difficult for them to make it work. I don't care what anyone says. The Suns are absolutely a bad matchup for the Lakers. Of course, the Lakers are a bad matchup for the Suns. It's LeBron and AD, of course. But the Suns have kick-ass guard play that the Lakers simply do not have. The Suns have a better center than anyone on the Lakers. I don't care that none of you watched the Suns play this year. DeAndre Ayton is better than any of the centers on the Lakers. If you consider Anthony Davis a center, fine, but he plays power forward for them. And DeAndre Ayton is simply better than anyone 
that the Lakers can trot out there, and that includes Mark Gasol. Go fucking ask Jokic about that shit. Jokic hates playing DeAndre Ayton because he fucking puts the clamps on him. DeAndre Ayton is been he's been an elite defender this season and no one has paid attention to that shit and whatever. You know what? I've said this a million times. You know how I feel about this. Mikhail Bridges is an all defense level player. We know again, what you've got in the guard play cam Johnson streaky as hell. But when he's on the dude throws down dunks, he bags triples. We know what Jay Crowder brings to the table. We know what Jay Crowder's experience with LeBron means. This is an opportunity for Phoenix that they have not had in a long time. And I want the Lakers in the first round. I want them now. I want them right now. I want to establish dominance. Fucking right. That's what I want to do. I want to show the rest of the league that this team is for real. And you do that by kicking the champ's ass out. And then you turn around and you look at the rest of the Western Conference. And you say, who the fuck else wants them? And then you point at the Nets and you say, I'm coming for you. That's how you handle this situation. That's how I want Chris Paul and Devin Booker to handle this situation. Bring it the fuck on. Bring it on. Turning to the Russell Westbrook triple-double thing. um, I just wanted to talk about this for a minute. Russell Westbrook breaking the Oscar Robertson triple-double record. Um, Russell Westbrook is a monster on the court. Um, I've always been someone who's ragged on his efficiency, but there's no way to, you know, doubt his impact on winning. Russell Westbrook is, you know, a clear case for like, he's like a raw numbers over analytics type guy. Like you look at the advanced stats and, you know, they're not really good, but then you look at just wins and statistics and, you know, and I mean, the dude is something else. He's a force of nature. Um, and you know, it's interesting because coming into this season, I kind of liked the Wizards. <laughs> like, I was someone who was like, oh, you know, you got, if Westbrook gets a little healthy and, you know, you got Beal and I really like Denny Avdia. I still like Denny Avdia. I know it didn't kind of work in the way that we hoped, but, um, you know, this year, season didn't go how, how they wanted. They had COVID, everything. And then now lately, they've really been firing on all cylinders. They've come back. They've won a bunch of games. They're, you know, in the hunt and everything. Um it's kind of validated some of that. And it's just interesting because the Russell Westbrook thing is, it's interesting. It's like, if you say Russell Westbrook should be more efficient, people get really angry, but it's like, dude, if he was like a little bit more efficient, he would be like LeBron, like, like his numbers. (laughs) Like if you, if, if he could just shoot a little more, he'd be like LeBron. Like that's like, I think that's the, that was like always my thing with Josh Smith is like, I was like, dude, if you could just shoot, and this is, God, I feel like, I feel like I'm mentioning too many other people because I've been listening to podcasts and Kevin O'Connor said, you know, essentially he only criticizes Russell Westbrook because, you know, he wants to see him be better. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not, I feel like I'm ripping everyone else's thoughts here. That's not, but I just, I, I, my thing with Russell Westbrook has always just been like, if he was a little bit more efficient, he would literally be LeBron James, like, because if he was a more efficient player, no one else does what he does in all phases except a guy like LeBron. And that, to me, not that they play necessarily the same way, but, like, he's, you know, that close to being a multi-time MVP. He's that close to being a champion, you know, level guy. If he just had, you know, a little bit more ability to, like, 
do some of these basic things. But the thing that sucks about Westbrook is that when he's not playing well or when he's out, everything falls apart because it all goes through him. Everything goes through him. Everything you do runs through him. You have to let him run the offense. You have to let him, you know, run the fast breaks. He's got to get the rebounds. He's got to get the assists. Everything has to go through him. So then when he's not there, you're playing an entirely different brand of basketball. Cause it's not like you can just replace Russell Westbrook. And the thing is, is that he's never been able to like fit in off that. And that's where LeBron could do is like, if, you know, LeBron can like slide to the corner and bag triples and let someone else run things. Not that he necessarily is always going to do that, but like he's capable of being a shooter. Westbrook is not capable of doing anything off the ball. Everything has to flow through him. And so if that's going to happen, he has to play at the most of elite levels all the time. And he's just never been efficient enough for that. And so it's just one of those things where like Westbrook haters go too far because look at what the guy does. Like he's ridiculous. Like you can't hate this dude. Like he's incredible. But then Westbrook supporters go too short and it's just like Russ can do no wrong. And it's like, okay, but he shoots 43%. Like that's still not good. Like there has to be a middle ground somewhere. We have to like be able to sit here and be like, dude, yeah, if he could play off ball, it would be, he'd be one of the best players of all time, but he can't. So that's a hindrance for him, but that doesn't mean he's not still one of the, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know where Russell Westbrook rates all time, and I'm not going to sit here and, and, you know, try to rank that. But, it, you know, it, were he able to play better off ball, he'd certainly be higher. And it's always been a problem of his. It's why he got more shots than Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City, because KD could play off ball and he couldn't. And so it's dogged him his entire career. The only time that he ever maybe did it a little bit was like last year with the Rockets for like that one stretch of the season before he got hurt again. Like, it's just interesting. Like, Russell Westbrook will never be properly celebrated or properly judged because nobody can like it's there are flaws in his game but he's so good at what he does that you want to let them go but in certain ways you probably shouldn't it's just it's he's an enigma there's no other way to to look at it. it's like mike vick okay like mike vick was one of the most electric players in the history of the nfl he had all of the arm strength he had all of the speed But he never wanted to play pocket quarterback at all. And the thing about scrambling quarterbacks is you have to be able to play pocket quarterback. Not because, you know, you shouldn't run or something like that, but because you just can't run all the time. And you can't use that as your, you know, crutch running on every play. And you need to be able to lull the defense into a, oh, he's not running because you're playing pocket quarterback. And for all the years that Mike Vig played, he never could figure that out. He figured it out for like one year. That year he was in the MVP race in like 2012 with the Eagles. He got that $100 million quarter, quarterback contract again after he had, you know, gotten back to the league. And then he was never quite that good again. Um, you know, but Mike Vick was someone who like, you couldn't deny that you wanted him on your team because he's an electric fucking player. He throws the ball a mile. He runs a million miles an hour. How do you not want him? And you just kind of had to live with the mistakes because he made you better. And, you know, he got, he never quite, you know, was a Super Bowl contender. I mean, they got close in different years and, 
um, you know, injuries may have hampered him here and there. And obviously, who knows what would have happened if he doesn't miss like four years in the middle of his career because the whole dogfighting thing, obviously. But and obviously, in terms of like humans, Russell Westbrook is like a championship human. Russell Westbrook is a phenomenal guy. Mike Vick went to pr- federal prison for dogfighting. I'm not trying to compare them as people, obviously. Uh, I think Mike Vick has rehabbed himself very well. But Russell Westbrook is like a phenomenal person. Like you will never, ever hear anyone say something bad about Russell Westbrook, the person. He's a family man. He's a phenomenal father he you know he loves his partner like russell westbrook is a legendary human being on top of being a legendary athlete but it's interesting that nobody can honestly debate him because russell westbrook fans simply won't acknowledge that he should be more efficient and russell westbrook haters won't acknowledge that he's still a fucking wrecking ball it's just a really interesting thing and i I feel like i sit in the middle i feel like it's either you love this dude or you hate him you know there's no there's not a whole lot of um you know, people either love Westbrook or hate him. It's just a really interesting thing. And it was really interesting to watch the Rockets go from completely hating him to then loving him to now having mixed feelings about him. Um, it's an interesting thing. But I just think that Russell Westbrook is simultaneously under and overappreciated. And I think that in the same way that we have critiqued LeBron for his defense in years past, not not the most recent couple years, but we've critiqued LeBron for his defense in years past. We've critiqued Harden for his defense in years past. Uh, you know, we've critiqued Paul George for his playoff performances and all these things. I think it's fair to critique Russell Wills, uh, Russell Westbrook, excuse me, for his efficiency. Uh, you probably shouldn't critique Russell Wilson for his efficiency because uh, he he was balling last year. But Russell Westbrook definitely can be. But it's just really interesting how it. It starts a fight no matter what. He's one of these people who, um, you know, people just love him. And it's just very interesting. I don't know. Here's an interesting question. Has anyone been more loved without a championship than Russell Westbrook? Like, like that dude is so vociferously defend, defended because of his triple doubles. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't be, but... Man, like, like people, like, Dan Marino never won a Super Bowl. Charles Barkley never won the finals. You know, people bring those things up, but like, and maybe it's just because Russell Westbrook hasn't retired yet. You know, that's another question Verno and KOC asked is, how will he be viewed in 20 years? Again, this whole podcast is terrible. I'm just mentioning things other people said. I, I'm, I'm at a point where I'm like, I need to give other people due when they make a point and I want to respond to it. I'm like, I got to give them their due. And then I feel like I'm sitting here like piggybacking. I don't know. Podcasting sucks sometimes because that's how it goes. But nonetheless, it's. I think that Russell Westbrook is really difficult to discuss in a contemporary era because he's kind of at the intersection of how people view basketball. Old school people love him. New school people don't love him. And I think he's almost the perfect microcosm of the analytics debate. So it's definitely interesting to see, and it will be interesting to see how he's viewed going forward. I think, you know, Westbrook's a great player. I've seen him annihilate the Suns on many occasions, but he, you know, he's, he probably wouldn't be my first overall pick if I was trying to build a team to win a title. Um, you know, I just, you know, unless it was, unless you just had no other options. I mean, Westbrook can raise the floor of a nothing team, that's for sure. So um, if you're trying to get to the playoffs, Westbrook's your man. I don't know going beyond that. He hasn't necessarily proven it, but it's just an interesting character because he's better than a lot of people say, but worse than some people say. So it's really hard to, you know, I don't know. 
Interesting character. Interesting dude. Always going to be someone who will bring up debate. And then, you know, speaking of debate, another thing that's interesting is the play-in tournament. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I personally love it, and I'm going to tell you why. Teams that normally, right now, would be tanking to get a top 10 pick are instead trying to get a top 10 seed because that puts you in the play-in tournament and gives you an opportunity. And as alluring as the draft may be, when you're in the middle of the season and you've got players who want to win, the play-in tournament is a bigger draw. And, you know, even though these last couple weeks have still been kind of the doldrums of the season, um, you know, we all feel it. There are certain games that matter more, but there are some games that don't matter at all because there's just a lot of teams that are completely out of it at this point. And that's just how it goes. Um, but... There are still games that are exciting, more exciting games right now, because so much seeding is at stake between the 7th and 10th seeds and who's in the play-in and who's not in the play-in, who gets to seed 6 and avoids the play-in. Overall, I think this is phenomenal. I think it's great. I think that we should keep it. I've heard a lot of other stuff about like a mid-season tournament, sort of like, you know, soccer does, where you would have like, you know, various cups and different tournaments that you know, occurred during the season and, you know, that would not necessarily affect the regular season at all, but would just be another playoff scenario or something or another tournament. I'm not really a big fan of that. Um, what I do like is the tournament for the number one seed. I would like to keep the play-in tournament and I would like to, to create a tournament for the number one seed. So here's the thing. If you're going for the playoffs and you don't quite make it, that typically means that you're missing a player. You're one player short. Those are the teams that we should be injecting with the number one, number two, number three overall picks. We shouldn't be gifting the worst teams in the league the best prospects so that they can waste seven years of their career trying to build something. That makes no fucking sense. It's dumb. It's a horrible idea. What we should be doing is keeping the play-in tournament to keep teams competing for the playoffs. And for those teams that then miss it, we have the number one overall tournament where you can compete for the number one seed, where you're trying to get the number one seed. Now, I know some people will be like, well, then you'll have teams try to tank out of the play-in tournament so they can get into the number one seed tournament. And sure, because you would have to create a separation. If you make the NBA playoff play-in tournament, you you can't create the... Or you could... Hell, why not go another way? Actually, why not this? You create the play-in tournament. If you're the worst seed in the play-in tournament, then you get a buy round, a buy in the number one seed tournament. How about that? We'll link it all together. That makes even more sense. I'm figuring this shit out in real time. That's the beauty of this show. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep the play-in tournament. The two teams that win through the play-in tournament make the playoffs. The team that does not win, but gets the top seed out of the winners, then gets a buy in the number one overall seed tournament. Now, you might say to me, well, what if they tank their way out of the playoffs? No one's tanking their way out of the playoffs in a nationally televised game. No players would ever participate in that. And if a coach was, you know, sitting their players, it would never happen. Okay. So those players and that coach want the playoffs way too much. So you give, you know, the losers of that a bye week in the, in, in the number one overall seed tournament. And then you make the rest of the teams compete. And maybe you don't let the bottom teams the absolute worst teams, maybe you don't let them compete for the number one overall pick, right? So if you're an absolute garbage team that thinks you can just tank your whole season and throw everything away, congratulations. Now you have no chance at the number one overall pick. These are the things that should happen. 
we shouldn't just be gifting these things by the lottery because number one, if you gift them by the lottery, I mean, that's always just going to lead into the, the whole, the, the paranoia bullshit. Like a lot of people still believe that, you know, the Knicks were gifted Patrick Ewing and that, you know, the Pelicans were gifted Zion Williamson. People believe this stuff. They really do. They really think that, you know, these guys fell to these teams not through, you know, just a bit of luck, but through mass coordination. And that's obviously ludicrous, but people really start to believe it. And, you know, I mean, truthfully, NBA players should just be able to go wherever they want. Like, really, to fix the NBA, again, I've said this before, keep the salary cap, remove the max contract, and remove the draft, and just let teams pitch to players. And yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, the whole, well, the Lakers and Miami, and yeah, location will matter, but again... <laughs> If you have no max contracts, then suddenly something is very different about those things. And truly, guys should be able to play wherever they want. But if we're going to keep this system where these players don't get to choose the city they live and play in, then it would truly be better for them to be going to better teams with brighter futures. And it should be based on the winner of a tournament. Because if you're able to win that tournament, then you're closer to the playoffs than you know some team that doesn't even make that tournament. Like, the Rockets right now should not be gifted the number one overall pick for having a cheap-ass owner who destroyed their organization. You should not then be gifted the most talented player in the draft. That makes no fucking sense. And that all goes back to the whole thing that these guys should be able to choose where they live and work. But as long as we're going to continue a situation where we have some sort of draft scenario and they don't get to choose it, then they should at least get to go to an advantageous situation. That being a team that is close and this player puts them over the top and that's what these tournaments would do. So, you know, judge it for how you want. I like the play in tournament, but I want to see a tournament for the number one overall seed as well. I will say this. If I had to choose between a tournament for the number one overall seed and a play in tournament, I would choose the tournament for the number one overall seed. I do not like gifting the number one pick to the worst team. I don't. I don't think that. I mean, I've advocated for teams to tear down because that's how the system is, but I don't think it's something that we should do. I think that I really, truly think like in an ideal system, if you make the playoffs, you make the playoffs. If you don't, again, you go into this tournament for the number one overall pick, unless you're one of the worst teams, you know, maybe we just cut out the worst teams and don't let them get anything. And you might say, well, then they have no incentive to ever get better and they'll never get better. Yeah, you can always get better through free agency, through smart draft picks later on through organizational competency. You shouldn't be able to succeed just because you sucked enough several years in a row to get a bunch of top players and now you pretend you care. Shouldn't work that way. And we need to fix it. But the play-in tournament, as it stands, if the situation is as is, I like it. Another thing, as far as the NBA goes, that's interesting is the NBA top shot thing. I thought it was stupid at first come on here before and said that I liked it. And now I've essentially really understood why I like it and where it fits because I was a huge sports card collector when I was a kid. And it's a pain in the ass to flip through all your cards. And when you want to see your favorite highlight, you have to go to YouTube and search it or you have to go to NBA highlights or blah, blah, blah. These things make sense. My man Keith gifted me the Devin Booker game winner against Dallas earlier this year, which was a play that was awesome to me. It was meaningful to me. Devin Booker crushing the spirits of everyone in Dallas again, yet again. Yes, please. I want that very much. And now I have it forever and I can just go to my moments and pull it up anytime I want. And that's key to me. And I think that's the thing about Top Shot is 
You're taking sports cards and turning them into sports moments and then making them easily accessible. And you're creating an excess of these moments. Because here's the thing. No matter how many highlights we see, no matter how many sports cards exist, most plays in an NBA game are forgotten. The majority of things that occur in an NBA game are forgotten. They just disappear. And the only people who would see them are those who go back and study film for whatever reason. So Top Shot creates a connection to these moments that you remember as a fan watching the game. And it helps you connect with those things in a very real way. Because there are moments in games that mean everything to me when I'm watching it. And maybe I might forget it later because it's just a regular season moment. But what if I had the opportunity to see that again? Whenever I wanted, whenever I felt down and needed to pick me up. And that is what Top Shot is for. And it really works. But there's a problem. And that is that this company is not, A, properly evaluating their prices for packs, and B, is not properly dealing with their website. Basically, every single Top Shot drop involves some sort of technical issue that involves a delay. Especially for, like, the rare ones. There's always a technical problem. There's something wrong with the queue, blah, blah, blah. And I understand that, you know, sometimes you don't figure out bugs. You know, sometimes you got to work things out. But it's been literally every single drop day since Top Shot has come out. There's been, like, a technical problem. And that's unacceptable. It's costing people the opportunity for packs. I think I got a pack this last time because a bunch of people were unable to stay awake in Europe because the pack drop was delayed by two hours. So I benefited from it. Yay me. But the point is like, you need to have your technical shit ready to go. You can't make announcements about things like this that affect investments that people are making and then just constantly have technical problems. It's really unacceptable. And it's something they need to fix. And then as far as the pack prices go, like they increased the serial numbers for this pack, but also increase the price. And then we're giving away some cards that didn't even have close to the price value. Like I understand it's random, but they've started to water down their packs really hard while charging more money for it. And you've got to be really clear about what is available and what has value and what you're actually doing. Because some of these packs have moments that they're like, regarded as important or something and they're by tertiary insignificant players but they're like well we gave them a double badge well guess what top shot no one cares about your double badge people care about players that they know about that actually impact the game and matter and when people are spending a boatload of money you shouldn't be giving them sixth man of the year candidates as the premium card I'm not going to sit here and name players or name people, but I'm aware of certain Top Shop drops that people made purchases where they received like a sixth or seventh man as the premium card in their, you know, multi-hundred dollar purchase. And they are then, you know, well, it's not even part of the limited serial number, blah, blah, blah. I understand there's a limit to all of this. But I bought $9 packs that have provided me more value than these $150 packs I've bought. And I'm going to be honest with you, that shouldn't be happening often. And it's happening often. So if you're into Top Shot, I would advise you buy the cheap packs right now because they're screwing you over with the more expensive ones. And just be wary of this situation because they don't seem to have a great handle on their technology or their value. And I like Top Shot, and I like what they're doing, and I like the idea. 
but there needs to be improvements. Now, here's the thing. We haven't even seen a playoff run. We haven't seen an NBA draft. There's a lot of things that need to occur with this medium before we really know about it, and that's fair. But nonetheless, it is definitely something that is interesting to see some of the horrendous decisions that company has made and some of the things they've... I've, I've emailed them for customer support. You get a response like three weeks later. They've spent... They've received hundreds of millions of dollars in purchases. Hire more customer support people. You sign up for the dapper system that you use to make payments. They tell you you can't get payouts for six weeks. And then they tell you that it will cost you $25 to do a payout, even though they never mentioned that to you before. Like... These are sort of criminal, fraudulent type things. They're not organized well as a company. They're going to face lawsuits. And so I just, if I was them, I would get my shit straight before I partner with the NBA and open myself up to a lot of potential problems because some of this stuff won't go away. So my advice for Top Shot, do it. Don't spend a lot of money. Don't get yourself in too deep because complications may arise. It's a cool idea, but this company needs to get its shit together because some of this stuff, again, is borderline fraudulent when they don't even like I received (laughs) I received notification that I wouldn't be available for a payout for six to eight weeks. And then four weeks after that, they actually posted an article telling me I would have to pay twenty five dollars for a payout. So to be clear. I paid $15 in to purchase a card. They said, you won't be able to withdraw for six to eight weeks based on whatever you sell. I said, that's fine. And then at no point did they mention fees. And then they tried to, after the fact, mention fees. Like, this stuff is fraudulent as shit. If you're doing a Top Shop payout, I encourage you to just simply tell them they have to waive the fee for you. They never told any of us. So, you know, keep that shit in mind. This stuff will be problematic for them. I like the idea, but maybe get your shit straight before you partner with the NBA. This would have been fine to launch in 2022. You know, be smart about what you're doing because they weren't and it's going to be a problem. And finally, I know I don't talk about baseball a lot on this show, but there's one thing I want to talk about. Um, You know, we talked about. The Fernando Tatis extension and how that could be one of the best contracts in the history of baseball. I still think that could be true. Um, but the Oakland A's are in a precarious situation with the city of Oakland. They haven't been able to agree to a new stadium or, you know, a new construction project, whatever you want to call it. Even with the A's, you know, opting to, you know, they offered to pay the money for their whole stadium portion of the project. And now Major League Baseball has instructed them essentially to go look at other sites, not saying that they will do that, but, you know, they need to be able to essentially compare at this point what's going on in other cities, what the A's would be able to, you know, acquire, build, what the cost would be, etc. And I understand that this is mostly a preliminary move by Major League Baseball to scare Oakland into getting a deal done. But You know, the simple fact of the matter is that I'm fucking tired of this dueling war bullshit we see constantly between billionaires and city councils of major cities. This is our fucking team. It's our team. It's the team of the fans. It's not the team of the owners. I fucking hate ownership in sports. These douchebags get to show up 
having no history with an organization, no clue what's going on. And then because they don't like their suite, they get to demand taxpayer money to do what the fuck ever. And if not, then they'll go to another city. Man, fuck you. And I don't care if you've owned the A's forever. The A's ownership has been garbage forever. I'm sick of this bullshit. I'm sick of the war between city council and ownership at all times. I'm, I'm fucking tired of it. It's absolute bullshit. This is why I have been advocating for players to own their own teams. Because if you're going to tell me that players who do everything for a city are then going to move a team to another city, give me a fucking break. They're not going to do that. We don't need any of these owners or managing partners in the league. We need players running their teams. But in these situations, you're seriously fucking telling me that the Oakland Athletics, a baseball institution, are going to be moved? Really? That team means a lot to a lot of people. And you're going to fucking move them? (sighs) And on the other side, I'm so fucking tired of city council members of various cities who want to score brownie points by holding up a project and holding up this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to let any of these things happen. These politicians will hold up a project for 20 fucking years and spend the entire cost of a stadium negotiating the cost of a stadium. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of the bullshit. Let's just get this shit done. Owners need to pony up their fucking money to pay for the teams or they need to sell the teams to the players themselves. And city councils need to allow these projects through. If you spend 20 years negotiating something and getting uh, bids and blah, 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 you end up spending the fucking money anyway. It's ridiculous. The city of Oakland wants to renovate that the the whole the whole Jack London Square Howard Terminal whatever it is they want to do the whole project. The A's offered to pay for the whole stadium. A notorious cheap franchise offered to pay for their portion of a city renovation. It still can't be agreed to. Like this shit is bullshit. It's all garbage. The Suns had a needed renovation going on in the arena, and. The city of Phoenix owns the arena, not Robert Sarver, not the Phoenix Suns. The city of Phoenix owns the arena. The Suns manage it for free. So all of the concert fees, all of those bookings go to the city of Phoenix. The Suns just manage the arena, which they do not pay for. The Suns rent the arena from the city. So we own it. The taxpayers own the arena. And when there was a new city council coming in and a new mayor, Kate Gallego, Kate Gallego was going to block and destroy any possibility of the Phoenix Suns arena being funded by taxpayer dollars. They wanted the owners of the Suns to do it. It's not their fucking arena. This is, this is the thing that, that drives me insane is that politicians and billionaires will do every single thing they can to paint each other as the enemy so that they can waste our money in the meantime. The Suns Arena Project was literally perfect. We own it. Taxpayer dollars increased it. And the Suns built a practice facility at Robert Sarver's expense. That literally made perfect sense. Now, if you're going to sit here and tell me, well, capitalism shouldn't exist at all. We should tax billionaires out of existence, blah, blah, blah. Fine. Yes. Yes. Yes, I agree. But let's exist in the real world for a moment. And when the city owns the arena, the city can pay to upgrade the arena because we reap all the benefits from the arena. The team rents it. A lot of the shit that goes on is political grandstanding as much as it is billionaire grandstanding. And if both of them would just shut the fuck up, 
we could stop having these things happen where cities that love teams have to lose them. And this is why I'm just saying, all of these things should be done by referendum, not by city councils, but it should be done by referendum. If the people want to pay the taxes to upgrade a city-owned stadium, do it. If they don't, then don't, fine. Fair enough, but it should be done by referendum, not up to city council members who can be bribed at any time. And I'm sick of this shit being decided by three or four people. And teams should have controlling interest controlled by their players. You're going to tell me that LeBron would move the Cavs from Cleveland? No, of course he never would have. Even if he might have left the team, he never would have moved them from Cleveland. Players care about teams. Even if they want to leave them sometimes, they still care about teams. Managing partners and owners don't give a shit about fucking anything. And I'm tired of this. I'm tired of these douchebags having so much say in what goes on. That we can create a situation where for 20 years, the A's were unwilling to do anything. And now that they're willing to pay their share, the city council can go, well, what about the previous 20 years? Blah, 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 blah. It's bullshit. We, the fans, suffer because politicians and owners decide they're going to swing their dicks at each other to decide who has much more power and our teams end up fucking moving. Give ownership of sports teams to local players. Give control of stadium renovation to local taxpayers. Let us make our own damn decisions. Power to the people. And that's the Blood Doctor Show. And I encourage you again to please, please look into what is going on in Palestine. And if you are someone who has viewed the Palestinians as evil, since the days of 9-11, I beg of you to please reconsider and look into these things. It's not that way. The world is not black and white like that. Allies are not infallible. Please make the right choices. I'm asking you to just love all people. Hatred has no place in this world. No matter how much we make it about everything that we do, it has no place. Any destruction of a race of people is genocide, even if it comes from an allied government. And what the IDF is doing is evil, and it must be stopped. And I beg of you to please look into it. And please spread the word, because... Knowledge is power, and I don't know what else we have. And that is The Blood Doctor Show. Peace to you and yours. <laughs>